Good to see everybody here this morning, but I have a request from you, or for you, um, that in the future, we do our best to violate the rules of the, of the state, because they said that uh, if they had assemblies of over 100 people, you weren't supposed to meet this morning, and we are in no way, in, in no way violating those rules, but I'd like the next time they do something like that, we'd be in violation of the rules, because we'd have more than 100 people, so. As far as the... Uh, Evening class, the evening assembly being canceled. They kind of went back and forth on that as whether we should or shouldn't cancel this evening. And then somebody looked down to saw who was going to be the song leader tonight, and that did it in right there. So. Now you're going to scramble for a bulletin, aren't you? Uh, next week we're going to start with the Gospel of John. It's my favorite gospel. I kind of even have to mark down on a schedule, when did I preach on what last? Because if I don't keep these records properly, I will be preaching on the Gospel of John, then 1 John, then the Gospel of John, then 1 John. I'll just do that repeatedly, and you won't think you need the rest of your Bible. Uh, but I love the Gospel of John. It's, it's so powerful. It's so There's comedy in there. There's uh, powerful stories. But there is the heart of what it means to be a Christian on every single page. And chapter 1, I don't even know how we're going to get through that, because chapter 1 is a long chapter, and every single verse is five sermons. Don't worry, I won't do that to you. But it, it's such a powerful story. And, but the problem is, I think, sometimes when we go through the Gospels, or this is, maybe it's more of my, my issue, is I tend to focus on the passage right in front of me and nothing else. And that's natural. It's, there's, it's not necessarily bad. But sometimes I think what we fail to understand, and John's going to make a big issue of this in chapter 1, is nothing in the gospel story, nothing in the New Testament, none of the parables, none of the healings, none of, none of them makes sense if we don't understand the big picture. The big picture becomes with the message of the cross. And that's one of the things that Paul makes sure that we understand, and he writes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He says, when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. We even talked about that a little bit this morning. You know, what if Jesus would just appear on a weekly basis? You know, we could have a jumbotron in the, in the heavens, and every week he would appear and he'd say, there he is, there's the facts, that's the intelligence, that's the information, now I believe. But he says that's not where it comes from. It comes from the power of God. And it really comes from a heart. A heart that is completely changed. And so what we're going to do next week, as we go into the Gospel of John, and what I'm attempting to do right now, is try to look at all of the different stories, all the different teachings, all the different lessons, and keep them in the perspective of the big picture, which is the cross, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus gives us so many exciting stories and lessons and challenges.
you could get lost in those stories individually. And at the same time, this is in my way, I'm going to move that. Okay, in the same time, we kind of, we lose the big story because we look sometimes focus on the individual stories. It's natural, but we're going to do our best to try to resist that and make every single story fit in the big story of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There is, you know, we're going to have stories of religious scholars. There's stories about sinners who find love. I love the blind man. We get to chapter nine. It's just, it's, it's powerful and it's, and it's comical at the same time. Uh, there's stories of the disciples who just don't seem to get it. If you don't think so, look, read John chapter 13 in your spare time tonight. Inspiring stories, preachings, miracles. Don't get caught up in this. Because if we take away the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I think we need to go back to the book of Ecclesiastes and agree with Solomon where he says, all is vanity and striving after the wind. Because if there is only this life, what is it that Paul says? We are of all men to be pitied most. If, if, there is, if there is nothing other than this life, well, we should be home. <laughs> now, I know there's nothing to do at home today, but we, we should be somewhere else. The great sermons of the Mount and the miracles of Christ, none of it has any value if we don't understand the message of the cross. And one of the problems today is we have, we have different purposes or motivations for our message. And sometimes we just like to feel good about ourselves. We like, want to feel good about this life. Which makes you kind of pick and choose stories. Because on one hand, I love the, you know, John 10, 10, where he says, I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly. Well, that's a good verse. And I, I preach it all the time. On the other hand, we've got, unless you pick up your cross and follow me. Now, that's the one we really don't like. And it, it, realistically, Jesus didn't mean that for you. He meant it for super saints. And none of us here are super saints. We live in a world that is constantly telling us that uh, we're wonderful and how great we are. And sometimes we do that when we come to church. We come and tell ourselves how wonderful and how great we are. But there's a reality that the gospel story is going to tell us, and you already know it. You know, how often, now I know some of you guys are real good scholars at school, you know, and you study real hard, you know, I'm looking at Morgan back there, and, you know, did you get a 99 or did you get a 100 on that test? If it's possible to get 105, did you get 105? That was never me. When I turned in the test, I kind of knew what was coming back, and usually it wasn't good. I, I was a horrible student. If, if uh, I try, you know, for me, success was a C because a C meant you didn't get in trouble at home, but you get in trouble at the teacher, and you didn't have to do it over next year. But sometimes you turn in that paper and that I know what's going to come back to me, and uh, I don't have to have the teacher in big red letters put that failing grade up there. I knew what was coming back, and I honestly think most of us in our lives. We don't have to be told what's on that screen right there. You don't have to have Romans 3.23 to validate the reality of your life. You know it. And if you're not in Christ, oh, you know it. Because when you're outside of grace, what the scripture tells us, 
Back in the garden. Remember the story in the garden? You're dead. That was, that was the judgment. And it wasn't even really the judgment. It's the reality. You know, when the teacher writes that letter on top of my paper, she's not really giving me the grade. It was already there before I handed it to her. She just wrote it down in case, you know, I wanted to lie to myself. <laughs> and in the garden, when he says, the day that you eat of this fruit, you will surely die. And the day that they decided that they could be gods themselves rather than allow God to be God, they died. And we have a Bible story from Genesis to the Apocalypse that tells that story. All sin and fall short of the glory of God. We just need to admit that we have these problems. And the gospel story is we need to reach for hope. So he tells us over in Ephesians, he says, But God, being rich in his mercy because of his great love, which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. The problem with the modern preaching of the gospel today is there's a wave of teaching out there in our world of how great you are, how good you are, and that you deserve better. When's the last time you used that word deserve concerning your own life? Well, I don't deserve this. Or I deserve better than this. And we teach that and we preach that. And so many times we take it to the idea that I actually deserve eternal life. And we do it in all kinds of ways because, I mean, come on, take, you know, let's be real. You know, I'm better than Lindsay. You know, if she gets to go to heaven, so should I. You know, I'm better than whoever. I'll, I'll quit pick on you guys. You might all get up and leave. Lindsay, she's nice. She'll, she'll just kick me later. We think we deserve eternal life. The reality that's revealed in the cross is not that you deserve eternal life or hope. It's the opposite. The first message of the cross is that you and I actually deserve the grave. That's not a story that we like to talk about. It's not, it's not the way we like to think. Because we like to think about fairness of life. You know, Frank's got a lesson on that, on, about fairness. Uh, I guess you won't be giving that tonight. We'll have to postpone that a little bit. That we want God to be fair. And the reality is we don't want God to be fair. We want God to be gracious. We want his justice, and his justice comes through the blood of Christ. With that in mind, I want to go back to the Old Testament. I want to look at a couple chapters, just briefly. Two chapters in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 52 and Isaiah chapter 53. Now these stories are so old. This, this writing, as far as we know, is about 2,700 years ago. About 700, 750 years before Christ was even born. And you've got to pause and listen to Isaiah's words, though. And I think you'll see it touches today. Now, now he's going to put it in the backdrop or the backstory of what was going on in Israel those days. But I think it doesn't take a whole lot of adjustment for us to put it in our own backstory, our own backdrop. So in chapter 52 of Isaiah, verses 1 and 2, he starts talking there. And if you read those verses, he tells us how evil things are on the streets, how terrible things are going on. And in his, it's a bad situation that they're in. The holy city is not so holy. But the promise, he says, is things are going to change. 
verse 3 of, of chapter 52, he gives a prediction. And it's actually, you and I read this and we see the cross. I'm not sure exactly what the people of Isaiah's days understood, so he'll keep explaining as he goes on through the next verses, verse after verse. But he says this statement here, talking to the Israelites. Now again, these are people who are suffering under the Assyrians. They're suffering under their own personal government. They're suffering because of what their neighbors are doing to them. There's a lot of good people. There's a lot of bad people. But every one of them is a desperate person. And so he makes this, he makes this statement. And he says, you are sold for nothing. And you will be redeemed without money. You know, what it basically sounds like, if you don't read any further, is there's been some bad weather in our society, in our world. A new day's coming. A new day's coming when everything is going to be forgotten and everything is going to start anew. Remember, the Jews had this year of jubilee, and that was a thing I kept thinking about. Where every 70 years, it didn't matter what your debt was or how long you had the debt, it's, it's forgiven. And he kind of gives that same kind of an idea here. But he encapsulates it more with the idea of not, not of a debt that you have, but an enslavement. And he says, you are enslaved by so many things. Keep reading. We'll see what the real enslavement was. It wasn't the Assyrians. It wasn't the future Babylonians that were coming. It wasn't the Amorites or the Troglodytes or whatever they were. I don't know. It was their lives. It was their sins. It was the desperation of a life that ends in death. He says, you are sold for nothing. You will be redeemed without money. So you get to chapter 52 and you start verse, down to verses 6 through 10. And a very familiar sounding passage comes out to us. And he says these words, he says, Therefore my people shall know my name. Therefore in the day I am the one who is speaking... Here I am. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of those of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. They shout joyfully together, they, for they will see with their own eyes when the Lord restores Zion. Break forth and shout joyfully together, you wasted waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. And finally, verse 10, he says that all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. How lovely on the mountains. Now, maybe... I don't know if you've ever read your Old Testament, but if you've read your New Testament, you saw that in Paul's writings. When Paul writes to the church in Rome and he's talking to the Jews and the Gentiles, and he's talking about this beautiful transformation of life, he goes back to Isaiah chapter 52 and he quotes, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. We got that word, good news. And that's where we get that word, you know, in, in Greek, it's the Evangelio, it's it's this announcement of, of, of a complete change of everything. Whatever was is now going to be completely transformed. Because back in those days, when you, a new Caesar came, you know, it's, you know, you know, the king is dead, long live the king. Well, in those days, it was, there is a new Caesar. Good news. And they used that same word that we translate today as gospel. Good news. 
there's a new king. Everything is changed now. And so Isaiah uses that same language when he talks about the coming of the Messiah. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. He tells us that the time is fulfilled and that the kingdom of God is at hand, is what Christ says. Repent, change, and believe the gospel. And we talked about that this morning, that word repent. It means change the way that you understand life. Change the way that you view life and believe the gospel. Believe this good news. This good news that Isaiah predicted so many years before. And when you just kind of go back on your own and read chapter 52 of Isaiah and notice some of the words, it's powerful. When he says your God reigns, that's glorious. Because that's what the world of Isaiah's day needed desperately was God the reign. And that's what the world desperately needs today is to see that God reigns. I sometimes think even about this virus that's going around. And we talk about the chaotic times, the desperate times. We have been living in desperate times since the Garden of Eden. Every now and then something like this just wakes us up and reminds us of that reality. But Isaiah says, shout joyfully. This message that he gives is a message of hope, a fresh start, freedom and purity, and God's protection. And I love this verse here. It's just You, you kind of get the idea of a bunch of pilgrims that are going from one part of the world to another part of the world. And, and you can think about it, if you've ever seen refugees, especially not over here, I'm not talking about the ones that are going north and south and, and north and south America, but especially over in other countries. They're desperate. They're unarmed. They're unprotected. And they don't know what they're walking into, and they don't know what's going to come up from behind. And that's the imagery that he gives here. He says, the Lord will go before you. And the God of Israel will be your rear guard. While you're trying to make that transition, while you're trying to go to where you need to go in life, God leads and defeats the enemies in front. And God follows and protects you from anything that might be there. God's got you covered, both coming and going. He plows into tomorrow for us, and there's no fear of yesterday. But then all of a sudden, Isaiah makes a transition in the way he talks about things. And he all of a sudden mentions a new character in this, in this story that he's telling. And he calls him, my servant. And this starts what we call the servant passages of Isaiah. That starts about this point. It goes forward to the rest, through the rest of the book of Isaiah. And you wonder, who is this servant? Well, you and I, we've been around long enough. We've, we've, we've read the Bible. We've read the New Testament. We understand it. But when he starts talking about this servant, it's kind of interesting because when he starts out talking about him, he talks about how good things are going. He talks about how he prospers and how he's exalted. But then all of a sudden, Isaiah says something else. He says he is marred more than any man. Marred means disfigured. And then Isaiah says something else about this servant. And he says, whoever this servant is, thus he will sprinkle Many nations. And the whole idea there, that sprinkling, it's, it's a Hebrew word. And when you go back and research it, it's the same word used repeatedly for a blood sacrifice. 
And so often when they would have the blood sacrifice, it was not just the killing of the animal, but they would take the blood of that animal and splatter or sprinkle it on those that were present. And he says, whoever the serpent is, he will sprinkle many nations. And then all of a sudden we get into Isaiah chapter 53. In Isaiah chapter 53, you get a somber voice. All the rejoicing and all the noise and all the glory that we saw in chapter 52 is kind of put on hold for a second. Because all of a sudden he wants to tell you another story. He wants to explain to you the role of the servant piece by piece, line by line. And as a Christian, you should recognize this. The predictions of the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth. The trial, the abuse, the beatings, the agony and the death are on every line. And as this horror unfolds, we find that not only God allowed it, you read the text and it says, not only did God allow it, God caused it to happen. To happen. And here's the shocking reality that Isaiah wants you to see. He says, he would, we're pierced through for his transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by our skirt, by his scourgings, we are healed. This beautiful start that he's been telling us about in Isaiah chapter 52, and all the glorious and the promise and the, the, the joy and everything else, it's tied to what takes place with the servant, who is Christ. The beauty and the joy of that fresh start now we have to go back and remember what he said earlier. For you are sold for nothing. And you will be redeemed without money. You and I were redeemed without money from the slavery of the life's crisis. From death and from the grave. But the fact that we were redeemed without money does not mean without cost. God's son. Jesus, the anointed one. He paid the price. Through Christ, we'll see in the Gospel of John, God came to live among us and to show us the way of life. You'll see that on every single page. You'll see the God who loves us so much, this God who came just like a man. But we'll also see where he dies, that we might live. Go home and read Isaiah chapter 53. Read about the passion of Christ as it unfolds on every line. And it places my guilt and my own destruction and my desperate need for someone to rescue me right before my eyes also. I need a savior. And it comes at a cost. Not a cost to me. It costs God because I have failed in my life. Surely, if you could have redeemed yourself, you would have done it long ago. But like I said, all sin and fall short of the glory of God, I didn't need to put that up on a screen for you to read. We know that on our own, we fail. We need a Savior. And not a, another cripple to save us. But the precious Lamb of God. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, and he will bear their iniquities. 
We're going to see about the Samaritan woman in chapter 3. We're going to see about, no, chapter 4. Nicodemus, chapter 3. We're going to go to a wedding in chapter 2. Have a controversial beverage there. We're going to see 5,000 people fed at one time by by the power of God. We're going to see a blind man who is healed. We're going to see a woman that they wanted to murder. They wanted to stone her to death. She gets a new life. We're going to see Jesus washing feet. None of that means anything if you don't understand the cross of Christ. When we go through the gospel, we need to constantly remind ourselves Jesus was destined for the cross before the creation of the world. There, there, was, there was actually about a whole century where the average theologian or, or scholar taught this idea that Jesus came to restore this, this nation of Israel to its former glory, and he failed, and he died. So plan B was the church. No. Before the creation of the world. Jesus was destined to die on a cross. That's love. We have hope because we have a God who loves us so much that no price is too high to pay. Now you weren't redeemed with money. You were redeemed with blood. And that's where hope arises. And that's where we get the new day. As the Father brought the Son from the grave, so we too have victory over this life and over this grave. Matter of fact, the victory I keep trying to emphasize is not one day, it is now. When you change, when you repent, in other words, when stop thinking the way you are and start thinking a different way because the world is now different because of the resurrection. We have victory. 2 Corinthians Paul says this, For indeed he was crucified because of weakness. Yet he lives because of the power of God. For we also were weak in him, yet we will live with him because of the power of God directed towards you. We have good news. Never forget the cost. But also when you see that cost, Don't forget the love behind that cost. I've never had an enemy sacrifice for me, have you? If you have, tell me the story. I'd be interested to hear. You've had parents that sacrificed some. You've had brothers and sisters that sacrificed some. My sister Connie beat up a bully for me one time. Christ died on the cross because he loves you. And he wants you to have life abundant. What it takes is for you to change your mind. It takes for you to take a trust that Jesus is the Son of God. That's what Isaiah was trying to convey was coming in the future. That's what John the Baptist said is coming in the future. And Jesus said, here I am. It was the message of the church throughout all the book of Acts and all the epistles. And it's a message we have today. Jesus is the Son of God came in the flesh. 
who died and was resurrected from the dead. He was resurrected in a physical body to let us know that there is victory in this life. Not someday, but now. We believe that. And he says, change. Just the fact that you believe it, I, I shouldn't have to tell you to repent. Because once you believe that message, if you understand that message, repentance is automatic. But he also wants us to understand that the repentance, the change is so radical. you got to die. The good news is only for people who die so that they can live. Basically, you choose to die now so you can live forever, where other people choose to live now and they will die forever. And so we baptize. Because it says, he who believes and is baptized, immersed, shall be saved. Oh, Paul, he, he had all the theological things to chew on he knew how to chew on for about three days. When he was on the road to Damascus, though he makes it to the city of Damascus, and he finally gets Ananias to come and speak to him, and Ananias comes and heals his sight and preaches to him the gospel, and then Ananias says, okay, what's it going to be? Why do you delay? Arise and be baptized, washing away your sins. It's a new birth. It's a cleansing. It's a clothing with Christ. It's a hope for eternity. If you believe, and you choose with your heart to serve God, then obey the gospel. He's paid the price. You can offer nothing in exchange. Whatever you need, we ask you to come now as we stand and sing. Jesus is standing in Father's home, forsaken, betrayed by all. Hearken what meaneth the sun.